Hello, this is Brett Martin from the podcast of Chesbro Baptist Church. Tonight's Wednesday night Bible study will be on Galatians 1, verse 11 through the end of the chapter, verse number 24. We're going to talk about Paul establishing the fact that he was called to be an apostle, not of men, but by Christ. Also, have a lesson in here about forgiveness and trust. I think this is an aspect of forgiveness that Christians really need to know about. So, please enjoy. All right, the book of Galatians tonight, uh, first chapter, verse starting in verses 11 and 12. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man, for I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what Paul is saying here is don't listen to any gospel outside of what Paul got directly from Jesus. And, you know, we can say the same thing today. Don't preach or listen to any gospel that's outside the revelation of Jesus, which is the word of God. Um, just as Jesus is the living word, the Bible is the written word. If you get your truth or if you get your gospel from any other source, I'm not interested. I'm not interested in the Book of Mormon. I'm not interested in the Watchtower. But don't think it's just cults, too. You know, I love listening to Rick Warren. I listen to him on YouTube. I think Rick Warren is one of the most intelligent speakers that I've ever heard speak. He is so incredibly smart, and he's doing a great job out there at Saddleback Church, and he writes some good books. But, you know, I think even Rick Warren would tell you that he's just a man, and he's not infallible. And for a church to say, oh, don't bring the Bible to church, it might offend somebody, bring Rick Warren's latest book, I have a problem with that. I'm not looking for any truth outside of the Word of God. Man is fallible. The Word of God is never fallible. There's no shortage of people today, though, that claim that they have a revelation from God. Oh, I've gotten a new word. I've gotten a, a, a revelation. But can we just take somebody's word? Can we just take somebody's word that they've heard from God and then just say it's truth? So let's examine this a little further. What about our Bible? How can we say that our Bible came from God and it didn't just come from man? Well, I've, I've got a few statements here. Number one, we know the Bible is reliable. The Bible is reliable. It is, it is an accurate, trustworthy, ancient document. We've compared and studied all of these different manuscripts. And, you know, we have over 5,000 different manuscripts or different copies of the New Testament. And they all say the same thing. There's a reason for it. Now, there are some variations here and there between all these different manuscripts, but none, none, zero, goose egg of any of the variations of these manuscripts impact our faith. 
Absolutely none. Of course, that's the process through which God preserved His Word. And we'll get into the na- in that to the next series. Af- after Galatians, we're going to do a, a short series on the Word of God. And so we'll get more into that when we get into that series. But, but you know, the Bible's reliable. Another way that the Bible is reliable is archaeology. Archaeology constantly <laughs> confirms the Bible record. Over and over and over again. Archaeology has never contradicted the Bible. People, places, events in the Bible, they're, they're constantly verified by archaeology. Oh, well, uh, the Israelites crossed the Red Sea. All right, well, if you go to the Red Sea and you look at where it's the most narrow and you go below the water, oh, what do you know? There's a, there's a place where people could walk across. Oh, and when you go down there, you'll find chariots too that have been there down there for long years. What do you know? Oh, the, the, the ark is at Mount Ararat. Let's look at Mount Ararat. Oh, I see where the, where the ark could land. And oh, there's not a man by that name during Jesus's time. Oh, we found this, this scroll in Syria. And it looks like there was a man in G- Jesus's time that, that had that name. So archaeology keeps backing up the Bible. Second, we know that the Bible is unique. The Bible is unique. It's, it's, it's special among all the books ever written. The Bible is unique in its continuity. I'm going to read you a statement. Being written over 1,600 years ago, over 60 generations, by more than 40 authors on three different continents, in different circumstances, in different places, different times, different moods, in three languages concerning scores of controversial uh, subjects, and the whole Bible speaks with one voice. That's amazing. It's amazing. You know, it's, it's, it's unique in its circulation. You know, the Bible is the most published and popular book ever written. You know, these, these New York bestseller lists that come out, they constantly, all the time, ignore the Bible. Because if they didn't ignore the Bible, the Bible would be at the top of every list and would always be at the top. It would always be number one. So they just ignore it. Pretend it's not there. The Bible is unique in its translation. It is the first book ever translated. And it has been translated into more languages than any other book. It is unique in its survival. It has survived the corridors of time. It survived criticism. It survived persecution. It survived being written by hand. The Bible has survived. It is unique in its honesty. Every ancient Writing out there looks at man in a certain way. Man is in and and of himself good. Man can find the answer within. Look at all these ancient works. They all say the same thing except for the Bible. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says that man is bad. That man can't find good in himself. And that's a trend with all these. The Bible's different than all these other writings. It's unique... uh, It's unique in its influence. No other book has had more impact on our society and on any society in any culture than the Bible. 
Just in our society alone, over 200 and something idioms that we have, a bird in the hands worth two, more than two in the bush. Sayings like that, we get, the, we get over 200 of those directly from the King James Bible more than any other source in our, more than, way more than Shakespeare, which comes in number two. So, so we know the Bible is unique. Number three, the Bible is a book of prophecy. Prophecy that has been literally fulfilled. There are over 300 prophecies about the Messiah in the Bible. And when, when Christ came, he fulfilled every single one from his birth in Bethlehem to his death, his burial, his resurrection. All of them were uh, fulfilled down to the letter. Another example in the Bible fulfilled prophecy is when it, when it prophesies the, uh, the successive world empires. You had Babylonia, then Persia, then Greece, and then Rome. And it predicted it perfect. And the only criticism that critics can have of this particular prophecy is that, oh, it must have taken place after the events. That's the only criticism they got. Because if they actually go by the actual date where this prophecy was mentioned before all this stuff happened, they, they've got no criticism of it. And then fourth, the Bible, without a doubt, has changed lives. It has changed the lives of millions, regardless of race, era, sex, locale, age, social status, class. The Bible has changed lives. Now, one might look at this evidence and say, well, that does not prove that the Bible is from God. I'll give you that. But it gives us reason to think it, that it is. It gives us reason to think that the Bible is from God. And look, at the end of the day, believing the Bible's from God, it's, it's, a, it's a step of faith. It's a matter of faith. But it's not blind faith. It's intelligent informed faith verse 13 for ye have heard of my conversion in time past in the jews religion how that beyond measure i persecuted the church of god and wasted it so let's talk a little bit about the events leading up to paul's conversion acts 22 3 says i am verily a man which am a jew born in tarshish a city in cilicia Yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers, and was zealous toward God, as ye are all this day. Now Tarshish um, was a city in ancient Cilicia, uh, and this, this location is known as the modern-day province of Mesin, Turkey. And uh, although Paul was not born in Israel, Paul was a full-blooded Jew. Now, we've talked about Paul's teacher in another lesson in the past, and I've went over this information before, but this we're talking about Paul, and before his conversion, I'm going to go over this information again. Uh, he had a teacher named Gamaliel, and Gamaliel was a very respected Jewish teacher. He was so respected that not only is Gamaliel in the Bible, he's also in the Jewish Mishnah, he's also in the Jewish Talmud, okay? He's in all of these writings, and, uh, you know... 
now Saul, as he was known before his conversion, was Gamaliel's student. Okay, now Gamaliel's uh, <clears throat> view for how to handle the followers of Christ was a little conservative compared to Paul's approach. Let me read for you here in Acts 5, 38, 39. This is Gamaliel talking. He's talking to the other Jewish leaders and he's telling them how he thinks they should handle these, these, these followers of Christ. And, I, and he says, And I now say unto you, refrain from these men, let them alone. This is Gamaliel talking. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it lest happily ye be found to fight against God. So Gamaliel was like, look, if this isn't from God, it's not going to last. Just leave them alone. God will take care of them. Look, if this is from God, you can't stop it anyway. That, that was Gamaliel's position. Now, um, the Talmud, when it references Gamaliel, the, the Talmud tells us that, that Gamaliel had an impudent student. A student that that didn't want to uh, that kind of went against his teaching a little bit, and uh, there are a lot of people that think that this is a reference to Paul. Um, let me read for you Acts eight three. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Now, now Saul was very zealous against the church before his conversion and. Uh, a few verses before this, Saul held the coats of the Sanhedrin as they, as they stoned Stephen. Now that word havoc there, usually that word havoc talks about wild beasts like, like, like wolves and lions. Paul raged, Saul raged against the church like a wild lion or a ravaging wolf. Going house to house, throwing men, women, families in prison. And the reason why he was throwing them in prison is because the Sanhedrin had no power to kill people. Okay? They didn't have, well, they didn't have any legal authority to kill people. I'm not saying they never killed people, but they didn't have any legal authority to do it. They, the only thing that they had legal authority to do was in prison. And how they got away with, with stoning Stephen and other deaths. It was one of these, oh, well, we didn't see anything type deals. You know, this thing where you, uh, you know, uh, somebody gets shot in a, pri in, in, a, in a bad neighborhood. And you go there and there were plenty of people that saw it. But then you ask them who, and then you witness and nobody saw anything. Okay, this is kind of the same deal. Uh, Acts 9, 1 and 2. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went into the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. So even though Saul was already persecuting the church more than his teacher, Saul wanted to take it to the next level. So imprisonment wasn't enough. Confiscation of goods wasn't enough. Paul didn't just want to hold the coats of the murderers. Paul wanted to do the killing. Now look, to me and you, this may sound like a bloodthirsty psychopath. But I want you to keep in mind, as Paul's doing this, he thinks he's doing it for the Lord. 
He thinks he's doing it for God. And it was at the height of this that he received the gospel. In Galatians chapter 1, back up in verse number 12, it says, I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Even Paul's own relationship with the gospel was unique. Most everybody hears the gospel from somebody else. Uh, let me read for you Romans 10, 14, and 15. How then shall they call on him who they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad, glad tidings of good things. This is God's normal way of communicating the gospel. There is a preacher or there is another Christian that gives the gospel. Now, it's written on our hearts when we're born that, that there's a God. We know that instinctively. But you're not going to get saved unless somebody gives you the gospel. It's just not going to happen. Paul was not normal in this way. Paul was not normal in this way. Paul received the gospel in a dramatic, direct revelation when he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. He said, I didn't get this gospel from a man. I got this gospel directly from Jesus Christ. And you can go back to Acts 9, 1 and 9 and read the account of Paul on the road to Damascus. And it's incredible. He's on this road to Damascus. He spends three days without, without sight. Uh, Jesus spoke to him directly. He spent three days without sight before a Christian named Ananias came to him. And it was during this time that Jesus brought the gospel to Paul. Ananias didn't give Paul the gospel. Ananias was there to facilitate him accepting Christ, but he didn't give the, uh, he didn't give the, uh, the gospel to him. Paul already had the gospel. He got it from Jesus. Paul said in verse 12 he did. It's like when somebody's in church. I, I did hear an illustration one time. There was a man in church. He was a church worker. He'd been holding on to the back of the pew for 20 years. We hear that all the time. One day he got convicted and said, I'm not saved. He went down to the, to the, uh, to the uh, in fact, if I remember this illustration correctly, he went down before he started the invitation. It was the end of the sermon, and the preacher was dragging and not getting to the invitation part, and a man just stood up and went down to the altar before the music started. And the preacher got down there and said, what's going on? and the man said, look, I don't have time to wait on you to get to the invitation. i got to get saved now, and if, I know how to do it, so if you don't help me, I'll just do it on my own. So he already knew the gospel. He just needed some help to facilitate that. And that's what Ananias was. Paul did not get the gospel from man. Paul got the gospel from Jesus Christ. That's why as soon as Paul got saved, he immediately went and started to preach. He didn't sit under anybody. He didn't go to the apostles and learn from them. He didn't sit under Ananias for a little while and attend a discipleship class and, and uh, attend a, a, a personal evangelism class. And No, he went and did it because he didn't have to learn from a man. We do. We have to do that. We do have to sit and learn. We have to go to discipleship class or whatnot, you know, and we have to sit under somebody that teaches the Bible. Somebody has to give us these things. Paul didn't have to have that. 
Paul got it directly from Jesus. Verse 14 in Galatians 1. And profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceeding zealous of the traditions of my fathers. Now, there's a, there's a lot of elements in this verse that we've already discussed, but there's one element in this verse I want to focus on. It's where it says, exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. A very large part of the doctrine of the Pharisees depended on mere tradition. Now, Paul made this a special interest of study. Like, when he went to Gamaliel's Bible College, this was his major. His major were these traditions. An example of these traditions is found in Matthew 15, 2, where it says, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. So the word elders in that verse in Matthew 15 too, it's talking about, you know, ancestors, it's talking about the ancient ones, and these traditions of the elders, at the time, they weren't written down. They weren't even written in the law. They were handed down generation from generation by memory. And Paul, who was a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee, held and observed these traditions. Now, here's what the Jews actually believed. They believed that when Moses was on Mount Sinai, he received two sets of law. One set was written down and recorded in the Old Testament, and the other set was just, it was, it was, uh, just handed down from father to son. They honestly believed that. They believe that, that, that when Moses, right before Moses died, these unspoken traditions, he passed them off to Joshua. Joshua passed them off to the judges. The judges handed them down and passed them off to the prophets. And that's how these, 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 un, these unmentioned, unwritten traditions, how they, how they were all recorded. And they were kept pure until they were written down in the Talmud. Now, these pretend laws contained in the Talmud and the Mishnah, the Jews hold these pretend laws higher than the Old Testament. These, you'd think to a Jew that the Old Testament would be the most important book, and it isn't. Okay, it's the Mishnah, it's the Talmud. It's these unspoken laws that were passed down generation to generation and then finally written down. You know, and, and this particular tradition of the washing of hands Look, these, these pretend laws contained there, they're numerous and they're complicated. But the, like I said, they held these pretend laws higher in higher esteem than Moses or the prophets. Now, this particular tradition of the washing of hands, it wasn't just extended to washing your hands before you ate. It was, you know, Mark added, you had to wash your hands before you went to the market. There were certain cups, pots, brass vessels, tables that you had to wash your hands before you touched these items. Um, they had silly rules about how much water you had to use, um, how it was applied, uh, the number of times it should be, should be changed, the water should be changed, the number of people who could wash in the water at a time, etc., etc., etc. Just a bunch of uh, silly rules. And what did Jesus say about these rules in Matthew 15, 6? 
He said, thus have you made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. So these unspoken rules, Paul was an absolute expert in. And there's a reason for it. There's a reason why he was an expert in these unspoken rules. Verse 15 in uh, Galatians 1. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. So Paul says that God purposed for him from before birth to be a preacher and an apostle. Now, Paul was designated to be an instrument that God would use to spread true religion. And he did this from the womb. Now, we see a couple other examples of this in the Bible. One such is, is the most famous one is Jeremiah. Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. So Jeremiah was set apart early. Not only Jeremiah, but Isaiah as well. Isaiah 49.1. Listen, O isles, unto me, and hearken, ye people, from far. The Lord hath called me from the womb. From the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name. So this is true about Isaiah. This is true about John the Baptist. You know, these men like Paul, they were designed for the work, and then afterwards they performed it. Um, uh, think, think about what that means for me and you. That means that he had a purpose for us before our birth. That means he designed us with a specific field of labor in mind. And then he gave us the talents to accomplish these tasks all before we were born. So that means that even when somebody is lost, God is still preparing them for their conversion. God trains people for future usefulness. And he keeps his eye on them until they get saved. So listen, all the education that Paul got, all the training that he received, he was extensively trained in these traditions. And there's a reason, because it was against these traditions that he would fight. He would, these, are, these are traditions that he had to show people that they were false and they didn't apply anymore. And who better to do that than somebody who studied the traditions? Who better to do that than somebody who was an expert in the traditions? Galatians 1.16 To reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I convert, conferred not with flesh and blood. Does God have a sense of humor or what? I think he does. He selects a man who was born for the job of preaching to the Gentiles. This man grows up hating Gentiles, believing that the only reason for a Gentile is to fuel the fires of hell. And then it turns out he's supposed to preach to them. Paul is telling us here that when he felt the Holy Spirit calling him to salvation, he was called to preach to the heathen. He was called to preach to the people he thought he had been taught all his life were beneath him. He didn't have to consult anyone. He didn't have to talk to his friends about it. He didn't have to talk to his leadership about it. 
As soon as he was aware of his calling, he immediately obeyed. When God, God calls us to do something, he wants us to immediately drop what we're doing and go follow him. Says Paul did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, not even the disciples in Jerusalem, not even the eminent disciples. You'd think uh, the, the apostles, you'd think, man, if, if he's an apostle, let's go talk to these other apostles. He didn't do that. He didn't have to go to those apostles to discover the gospel. Jesus gave him the gospel. It was directly revealed to him by Jesus. Galatians 1.17 Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So, so Paul is still building this case. And Paul is, is establishing that he was not called of men Nothing that he got, nothing that he teaches, he got from man. You know, one would think that if you become an apostle, you go talk to the other apostles and tell them. Paul did not do that. Paul regarded himself as an apostle. He freely admitted that they were other, admits that there are other apostles before him. But he didn't get his commission from other apostles. He didn't get his authority from other apostles. Matthias can't say that. Barnabas can't say that. James, the brother of Jesus, can't say that. Paul could only say that along with the other original 11, that he got his commission and his authority directly from Jesus Christ. And uh, that's the reason he didn't immediately go there. After the ascension, several apostles remained in Jerusalem, and it became kind of the preeminent place of authority for the church. Um, you know, when Paul says he went to Arabia, that was south of, of Damascus. And in fact, the line, you know, Damascus was the capital of Syria, and the line between Syria and the Arabian desert is, not, is kind of skewed. And it was in that area where Paul where Paul immediately started preaching. Galatians 1, 18 and 19. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and stayed with him 15 days. But the other apostles, I saw none save James, the Lord's brother. So it was during these three years, was spent partly in Arabia, partly in Damascus. And it was during these three years, he preached the gospel. Now, these three years are important. And at the end of the lesson tonight, I'm going to talk about these three years, but we'll come back to it. You know, Paul did not learn the, the gospel from the apostles. He'd been a Christian for three years before he met Peter and James. This is all part of Paul's case that he wasn't called of men. In fact, right before he went to Jerusalem, I'm going to read you what happened to Paul right before he decided to go to Jerusalem. Starting in Acts 9.20, the Bible says, and Mount Paul, and straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them which called on this name in Jerusalem, and came hither for that intent? Then he might bring them bound unto the chief priests. But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is the very Christ. 
And after that many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. But their laying await was soon known of Saul. And they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down by the wall in a basket. So this was what happened right before he went to Jerusalem. So Paul, so these people are trying to kill him. He gets lowered out the wall in the basket. He gets out the basket and says, well, now might be a good time to go see those apostles over in Jerusalem. So let's go, let's go take care. Now's a good time to do it. I've been putting it off for three years. Now it's time to go. So once he gets to Jerusalem, the only two apostles that were there were Peter and James. There was only, there was only the two of them. And guess what? They wouldn't listen to him. They were afraid of him. They were afraid to let him join them. It took Barnabas. Barnabas giving a testimony on Paul's behalf. Barnabas had to tell them of Paul's conversion, what Jesus did to him on the road to Damascus, how he preached three years and saved many people and how people tried to kill him because he's preaching the gospel of Christ. It took Barnabas telling them that before they welcomed Paul. And after that, they, they welcomed, he was welcomed by the apostles. And Acts tells us it was during this time that he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Grecians. Now, another reason why Paul is ensuring the Galatians here that he was only with the apostles for 15 days He's doing that because he's saying, look, I wasn't under them long enough to learn from them. I was only there for 15 days, and then there was only two of them there while I was there for 15 days. I wasn't under them long enough to learn from them. Showing further, building his case more, that what he got, he did not get from man. He got directly from Jesus. Galatians 1.20 now the things which I write unto you, behold, before God I lie not. Okay, so, so this, is, this is just, this is what Paul, Paul's just stating here that everything he just said is true. And uh, he states before God that, that it is the truth. Galatians 21 and 22. 1, 21, 22. Afterwards I came to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. It was on, unknown by faith under the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. So you got Syria, which is between, you got Jerusalem, and then you got Syria, and then you got Cilicia up here. And, and, and Antioch was the capital of Syria. And was that all this in the adjacent places? Paul was from the area. This was Paul's stomping ground. So this is where Paul, Paul preached at. So these churches down in Judea, he was unknown. That makes sense. It makes sense because these churches were out of Jerusalem. And he was only in Jerusalem for 15 days, three years after his conversion. So all this makes sense. So this is all part of Paul's case that he was not called of men. And then Galatians 1, 23 and 24. But they had heard only that which he persecuted us in times past, now preaches the faith which once he destroyed, and they glorified God in me. So we see here that the church kind of forgave him for, for what he did. 
Now, I want to end tonight on this subject. I want to talk a little bit about forgiveness, but not forgiveness, and I've never heard forgiveness taught in this way. Not saying it's never been done. I've never heard forgiveness taught in this way. Um, we live in a day and time where you're, you're, and we can agree on this, your past follows you. With social media and Facebook and things like that, your past will follow you. But we have to remember when somebody accepts Christ, their past is forgiven. They, they are forgiven. Um, Colossians 3, 9 through 11. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. We're to forgive people, but let's talk about forgiveness for a minute. I was teaching a Sunday school class, and the, the lesson wasn't about forgiveness, but the subject of forgiveness came up. And there was a lady in the Sunday school class, she raised her hand and she said, Brother Brett, let me ask you a question. If somebody abused my children, am I supposed to just then forgive them and pretend that it never happened and then uh, just let them do what they did before? Or, you know, if I don't do that, then does that mean I really didn't forgive them? And... I mean, I gave her an answer. I kind of muddled through. I did not give her a Bible answer. I gave her what I, what I thought, but I didn't have a Bible answer to give her. And uh, so I kind of muddled through that. So I want to give you a Bible answer to that question tonight. I want to talk about forgiveness and trust. Is there a difference or do the two go hand in hand? I want to tell you another true story about a pastor. This pastor, pastor a big church, pastor had abused the church. He exploited his position. He used his position to get money, have affairs, gain power over the lives of his congregation. He uses power to manipulate people, have adulterous affairs, mishandle the finances, and eventually he was caught. After he was caught, he pleaded with the church. He did not want to lose his job. He pleaded with the church. He pleaded with the church to forgive him, let him keep his job, and he said, because after all, you wouldn't be good Christians if you didn't forgive me. And so this, this, this really happened. So we know that the Bible commands us to forgive. That's not in question. Here's a question I want to ask. Does trust come along with that forgiveness? That means if I forgive you, but then I don't trust you like I did before, does that mean I really didn't forgive you? So what's, where, where does one stop and do they both go hand in hand? Can you really not forgive someone unless you trust them completely again? Well, as always, let's look at the Bible. Let's see what the Bible has to say about it. Um, and of course, we're going to look to our ultimate example. 
Our ultimate example is, of course, Jesus. Now, Jesus forgave people. There's probably absolutely no question about that. Jesus forgives. We know that Jesus forgave everybody. Jesus forgives us. But does Jesus trust everybody? Does forgiveness and trust go hand in hand? Can you have one without the other? Or do you have to have both or you really didn't forgive anybody? Can you have forgiveness without trust? Let me read for you Matthew 6, 14 through 15. For ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive men not their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We see in the Bible here that we are called to forgive anybody that asks for forgiveness. Anybody that asks for forgiveness, we're called to forgive. Why? Because forgiveness is a release. Forgiveness is a release on that person for the guilt they have for offending you or making an offense against you. So it's a release of guilt for that person, but it's also a release of bitterness for you. So it releases them of guilt. It releases you of bitterness from a lifetime of bitterness. Jesus forgave no matter what, and he, accept, he, he, he expects us to do the same thing. Now, let's say that the person who wronged you is not interested in forgiveness. I've been watching this new show on TV called Court Cam, and sometimes these people will stand up in court, the, the families of the victim that maybe was, was murdered, and they would give a victim impact statement. And uh, sometimes the murderer would look, you know, sorrowful and be crying. But sometimes they'd just be laughing and smiling at these people giving a victim impact statement. Sometimes people are not interested in seeking forgiveness. What do you do in that situation? Romans 12, 17 through 19. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place under wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. So what are we supposed to do when that person is not interested in seeking forgiveness? We're to let it go anyway. Because like you said, if you don't, that bitterness is just going to consume you. We can afford to let go of anger and resentment because that vengeance belongs to the Lord. He is going to make sure justice is done. He will inevitably repay. Now, you also need to let go of your anger, give it to God. When it says give place unto wrath, the place you give your wrath is God and allow him to take care of the justice or turn it over to the state and or turn it over to the state. These verses I gave you in, or these are Romans 12, the first part of Romans 13, verses 1 through 3, um, it starts out, Let every soul be subject to the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. They that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. 
Okay, so then verse four in that verse, it continues. And the Bible says that the state is a minister of God who exercises justice on those who do evil. Verse four in Romans 13, for he this is talking about the state is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he, talking about the state, is a minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. We are not to seek revenge. We're to hand it over to God. We're to hand it over to the state. Let them exercise it, but we are not supposed to seek revenge. Now, now let's talk about trust. God forgives everyone equally, but does he trust everyone equally? Let me read for you John chapter 2, verses 24 through 25, and this is the New American Standard Version. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So at least for Christ, we see that faith and trust are not connected. Christ gave out forgiveness no matter what, but it would seem that trust is something that Christ gave out on a case-by-case basis. Let me read for you Micah 7, 5 through 6. Trust ye not in a friend, put ye not confidence in a guide. Keep the doors of thy mouth from her that lieth in thy bosom. For the son dishonoreth the father, the daughter riseth up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And man's enemies are the men of his own house. What the Bible's doing there is the Bible's basically telling Christians, look, don't be, you don't have to be pushovers. You don't have to be a pushover. The people the closest to you um, are, are the ones that, that can't get over on you. Look, trust is earned. We see that in Scripture. Trust is earned. Yes, we are supposed to forgive anybody for anything just as Christ forgave us. But does that mean that then I have to trust that person? Because if I don't, that means I really didn't forgive them? No. No, if somebody abused my children and, and they were around my children and abused them and then I forgive that person, I'm not going to say, well, I've forgiven you, come back around my kids. No, no, because forgiveness and trust are not connected. They definitely weren't connected for Christ. You know, and often believers often assume that people claiming to be a believer in Christ should be trusted above all other people. If only that were true. But it's not. Look, believers are forgiven for their sins. But we all come to Christ with different character deficiencies. And those faults don't automatically disappear uh, when, we get, when we come to Christ. I heard a story about a pastor. He wanted to do a large renovation on his church. And so people were, he was asking around for this, you know, for a good contractor. And people said, oh, you need to go over so-and-so. He's a good Christian. He's a believer. Um, he's got a good Christian testimony. His website's got Bible verses on it. You need to go talk. And the pastor said, okay, well, he's a Christian. I'll give him my business. 
And so he hired the contractor, paid him. The contractor came to the church, worked for about a month, and then left the job with, with, with $50,000 worth of work undone that they had already paid him. Kept calling, kept calling, wouldn't get an answer, so they sued the guy. Get to court and find out that this is the sixth church in line that's waiting on reimbursement for their money. This contractor did not keep his word. Just because somebody claims to be a believer doesn't mean that they are. It doesn't mean that, um, that they're without fault, and it doesn't even mean that they are a true believer. Um, but God warns us not to be overly trusting. God, God uh, Christ wasn't, and he was our ultimate example. Which brings us back to Paul. Paul did horrible things against the church. Horrible things. But he got saved and he spent three years in the desert preaching and witnessing and preaching and witnessing. And it was that three years of testimony that, that allowed Paul, uh, it was enough for him to earn the trust of the church. So he had his forgiveness at conversion, but trust, he had to earn that. 